Well, here's a listener question. How can I compete if I'm good, but just slow? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to be doing a tune-up right here at the end of the year. Great time to be looking at. Where am I? Where am I going? How can you make the adjustments that you need to? Well, this is Dan Miller. Yep, this is the 48 Days Radio Show, where each week we take 48 minutes to dive into real-life questions about figuring this out, how to find or create work that allows you to show up every day, excited to be able to do something that is meaningful, fulfilling, and profitable. Well, here's some of the questions we're going to be looking at today. Dan, we bought a business, but have not made one single sale. What should we do? And then a listener asked the question in the opening here, I'm still good, but slow. How can I get a job? Somebody has an idea. Does this idea have legs? Dan, I'm 63. Is that too old to start a business? How about this one? My family, check this out. This is pretty mind-blowing. My family feels that any self-improvement and or spiritual growth is a scam or midlife crisis. And they just know that the only way to earn a living is through a regular job. Wow. Ouch. Any self-improvement or spiritual growth is a scam. So let's just hope that we stay exactly the same as we are now, that nothing changes in our lives for the next 20 years. Oh my gosh. Well, quotation comes from Les Brown, which speaks to that. Les has his own story of coming out of an environment where people said, you can't do that. You'll never be successful. You're not smart enough. Well, Les says, you are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. So our call to action then this week is, what dream will you bring to life in 2019? One of our coaches recently asked in one of our groups, Mark Ross, coach from Texas, said, what will make you smile? At the end of 2019, but what a great question. Just think about that. As we go into a new year, what'll make you smile at the end of next year? Well, a couple of notes here before we go into some good news and then the questions themselves. <clears throat> Got a note that we are on yet another list of 20 top career podcast. So I'll put a link to that. It's obviously long. I'm not going to go through that, but there's certainly other information out there. We're delighted to be on a list again of 20 top career podcasts. Well, this is Thanksgiving week, a week that's probably a little shorter for most of you, at least one day off, if not two. Some people get the Friday off, some don't. I was talking to a friend yesterday and she has to work on, she's going to go a distance away to be with family, but then has to be back on Friday. But regardless, you know, if, if you're thrilled about having a day off where you don't have to work, it might say something about how you view your work. Reminded me of this old song. This is an old song. Uh, check this out. It's by Dirty Heads. Hey, hey, I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, hey, hey. 
Well, there you go. Every day's a vacation because I love my occupation. A little twist on that idea. Pretty cool to think about it. Well, we know that we talk a lot around here about blending work and play so that people really can't tell if you're working or playing. So I hope that every day for you is a vacation, but I also hope that you enjoy Thanksgiving, special time to be together with friends and family. A little break in the activity. Again, a reminder that we're getting toward the end of the year, but a great time just to be grateful. Express your gratitude this week. Well, thanks to all of those of you who let me know there was a little buzz in the podcast the last two weeks. Yeah, it was driving me crazy as well. Worked with our podcast buddy, Jody Smith, who helped me isolate that, changed the channel on my mixer. Got this big killer mixer that I've got, but changed the channel, muted the one that I was on. And for some reason that seemed to take care of it. So hope that all the audio is perfectly clean again this week. One of my little pet peeves is to have good audio quality. Started years ago, I had been doing a podcast for a couple of years using just a free download audacity and then using a little $19 radio shack lapel mic and nobody complained. But then I had somebody kind of gently tap me on the shoulder a guy named Cliff Ravenscraft who said, would you be interested in increasing the quality of your podcast? Well, that started a chain of events. Cliff set me up with fancy schmancy equipment that I hope did improve the quality a little bit. Well, here, this question comes, uh, well, actually, good news. I got some good news pieces here I want to share real quickly before we go into some of the questions. Ryan Stearns just shared an article, one of many out there, about the raging fires in California. You know, certainly a, a tragedy to see what's happening there. And there's a whole lot of stories coming out about that about humans caring for each other compassion going the extra mile. One about a nurse, a male nurse who worked at the hospital in paradise and in trying to get out of town, was able to get out driving his Toyota Tundra truck, but knew that there were still people there. And he went back into the fire, back to the hospital and was part of being able to rescue, making multiple trips out with his Toyota Tundra. That, that's a pretty significant part of the story here. You'll see where this is going in a second, but uh, it's got a picture of the Toyota Tundra and the headlights are melted. The taillights are melted. It's scorched up the sides. It's amazing that the tires are still inflated, but the, the truck is pretty much destroyed. And the guy just thought that was the right thing to do. Well, in this being online and so many people seeing it, he also got a text, a tweet really from Toyota who said, Hey, incidentally, don't worry about your truck. We're going to give you a new one. Uh, isn't that a cool story? I love that. You know, just somebody doing his, what he thought should be done with no regard for his own personal property or his own safety at that point. But a little reward at the end of that. Nice to see that happen. Still tough to see those devastating fires out there. My goodness. Here's another story out of that. Volleyball team devastated by fire shows up without equipment, but opponents have new uniform supplies and gift cards waiting. So this is again about the small town of Paradise, California, which was really wiped out by wildfires. The local high school girls volleyball team was still determined to play their semifinal championship match this last Saturday, despite having no uniforms or equipment after having evacuated quickly with only the clothes on their back. 
but the opposing team from Forest Lake Christian High School in Auburn was waiting with a big surprise. Within 24 hours, they had collected donations of $16,000. And when the girls from Paradise Adventist Academy showed up, they were greeted with custom uniforms, knee pads, socks, and a whole lot of love. Not only that, a $300 gift card was provided for each player, along with truckloads of supplies and clothing for their families. After the game, they were all invited to a banquet of warm food prepared by the Forest Lake families. You know, in times like this, you know, you think, well, insurance will take care of that, you know, and these people are not destitute, you know, they have resources. Yeah, but, you know, in times of struggle like that, we need to be willing to help each other. It's not just a matter of calculating how much does this person really need the help. It's just showing human care and concern to reach out, help each other. Great story of what these volleyball players did. Well, here also in California, there's a community of tiny homes that are breaking the cycle of addiction and homelessness for single moms. This is in Auburn, California. There's a place called Acres of Hope. And there are 10 tiny cottages where women can live up to two years, accessing the aid that helps them finish their education, clear criminal records, get higher paying jobs, find permanent housing, and most importantly, address the root causes of their addiction so they can start to walk out in personal success. So these are tiny houses and they can move in there. Got some really cool kids stories about children who got to spend time there rather than being farmed out into foster care, being able to stay with their mom because they got this little tiny village. I like that idea. You know, it doesn't take a whole lot. It doesn't take a 5,000 square foot house to house a family. Most of us have needs that could be addressed in small spaces. You know, I think about my daughter, Ashley. They just left here after having been here for a month because they're location independent, but they're on the road again, living in their trailer. Mom, dad, three little girls and a dog in 240 square feet. I mean, they're having the time of their lives. They've been out for over two years now, having visited all 48 states, but reminds us that, uh, you know, you really can have a wonderful life without some of the luxuries that some of us seem to think that we need. Well, hey, speaking of homelessness, got to give you an update, just in full disclosure here. A couple months ago, I shared a story about a homeless guy who had walked up on a woman who had run out of gas. Now, the woman locked her windows, locked her doors. because She was scared, concerned. The guy said, hey, he's a veteran. Don't be concerned. And he gave her his last $20 and walked and got some gas for her. That story, they then put up, the lady and her boyfriend put up a GoFundMe campaign to help this guy out. And they said they had a goal of $10,000. Well, that story went crazy. And it just seemed to touch people. The guy was a veteran. You know, he helped a gal out when he could have you know, done her harm, I guess. But uh, it was a sweet story. And people responded. There's the rest of the story on that. And it's not a real pretty picture. Because that did go viral. That little campaign has raised over $400,000, and there's where the story kind of breaks down. It turns out the whole thing was, in fact, a scam. It never really happened as they described it. 
they did know this homeless guy. They concocted the story because they knew it would play on people's emotions. And their plan was not really well thought out. They had no idea it would raise that kind of money. They thought they'd get, you know, $10,000 at most. They'd give the homeless guy, you know, a few bucks. And I, I suppose they had an idea from the start that it would benefit them as well. And that's really what has turned out. So now the homeless guy has gotten an attorney and is suing the couple who are no longer even together. And everybody's wondering what happened to the $400,000. Well, the homeless guy did get some money. They took pictures of a little camper that they got him, but um, they're saying that they were hanging on to the money until the guy could get clean from his drug addiction, which has not happened yet. But in the meantime, um, there's some other things that seem to be happening. Like all of a sudden, this gal who was uh, supposedly the gal who ran out of gas, uh, she has a brand new BMW. And she and her boyfriend are taking vacations to Florida, California. Uh, they took a helicopter ride over the Grand Canyon. Uh, it seems that their ability to have luxury items and vacations went up dramatically. Well, tough story to have it unfold like this. Now, here's here's the deal. I mean, GoFundMe has said that they're going to they're going to refund money to everybody, refund everybody's money, because obviously it's kind of a sour taste if somebody donated a hundred dollars and then they hear that this is how it turned out. But let's let's draw something from this. I want I want you to know about that because it's a realistic part of that story that I shared a couple months ago. And I want to be honest with what actually happened there. But I want to draw something from this. I mean, people can twist compassion and charity into something evil and self-serving. I mean, we, we know that. Does that mean we should become cynical and never give? I mean, when, when you think about it, what actually happens when you give to someone sitting on the sidewalk with a cardboard sign and an empty cup? I mean, Joanna and I go to Chicago every year in December, right before her birthday. It's a special celebration. We do just the two of us. And because of the time of year and because it's cold, there is always a rash of homeless people sitting on the sidewalks. I'm intrigued by the creativity of their signs. You know, I often engage with them, but just, just to you know, see what's actually going on, but they're very creative in their signs. You know, do they always represent accurately their situation? I mean, no. are there people who sit there and say that they were a Vietnam veteran when that in fact is not true? Yeah, you better believe it because that seems to touch the heartstrings of a lot of people and they'll give because of that. You know, there are people that'll claim that they have, you know, four children at home and no heat when that's not true. I mean, we, we know that. But do we have to make a complete investigation with everybody that we do share with, that we want to give to? No, not really. I mean, last year when we were in Chicago, coming out of the hotel we were staying at, we were right on Michigan Avenue, which is where we like to stay. It's beautiful with all the lights and everything right before Christmas. And there was a little gal right outside the Intercontinental Hotel sitting there. She's just softly crying. And she had a little sign that she needed $87 to get back home to her family, to get out of Chicago, away from an abusive relationship. Well, is that true? Is that a true story? I mean, how are you going to make that assertion? How are you going to dig deep enough to know that? Well, Joanne has a heart for 
people like that. She has a hard time walking by anybody who's homeless who has their hand out. She doesn't make judgments. She's extremely generous and gracious and just assumes that if we have resources, we ought to be willing to share with other people. So this particular gal, she went over and talked to her. And instead of just giving her $5 to put her in her cup, she gave her the entire $87, I think it was, that she needed to get a bus ticket. Well, we went on and that was fine. And I, t- I told Joanne, I said, well, the, the real test is going to be if tomorrow night we come out and she's there again with the same sign. Well, she wasn't. And we'll have to believe that that was an accurate sharing of her story and that we helped the little gal out and she was able to get out of a tough situation. But in that, what I finally decided to do, because it's impossible to help everybody, it's the, the needs are endless. So I decided this was years ago because of our trip to Chicago that we would just budget a certain amount for giving to people in need like that. We don't have to make judgments about who is misrepresenting or whatever. It's just whoever touches us, whoever you know we encounter, engages with us, whoever Joanne feels like we ought to help, we help. So we just budget for that. I typically take $200 in fives, tens, and twenties. I have it in just my outside coat pocket. So it's not mingled with our own money. Or it's just specifically for that. And Joanne can make the decision about who gets that. If it's one person, they get it all. That's fine. But then it's, then it's gone. Then we can't just continue to help more and more and more. I mean, that's not our primary purpose there, but we want to be sensitive to that being in the holidays and all that. But here, here's the deal. Again, when somebody we've helped turns out to not be responsible or to use it in a poor way, or you gave to a homeless and then you saw him walk into a bar and stagger out, you know, 30 minutes later, eh, you don't have to beat yourself up about that. You know, giving does something for us as well as for the recipients of our gifts, but it does something for us. Years ago, when Joanne and I were living in Bowling Green, Kentucky, I was getting my master's degree in clinical psychology at a teaching assistantship there. We were living in a, an old house where we, I worked off the rent. It's a house that had been kind of neglected for a while. We talked to the landlord and she agreed to let us live there. And then I cleaned things up. I mean, restored three fireplaces in it, painted inside, cleared off a patio outside, did new landscaping. So I worked off our rent in the two and a half years that we were there. We were living and we didn't have two nickels to rub together. You know, I I was getting, my tuition was paid for because I got a graduate assistantship and I was getting $200 a month. Joanne was sewing clothing for hard to fit women to add a little more income. But we had a small child of our own and she being the full-time mom, you know, we were just making things work. Now, you know, we were living on next to nothing by choice because I was in a graduate program. So it wasn't like we were uh, destitute because we didn't have any opportunities. It was just a season where we were living on. We just scaled our living expenses back dramatically to get through that period of time with no student loan debt, which is our pattern. But during that period of time, we had some friends contact us, say that there was a young guy that showed up at their church and he just needed a place to stay you know, for a couple of weeks until he got on his feet. And he was Johnny. And we said, well, sure, we're in this big old rambling house, you know, just the three of us, two of us and our small child. Sure, he could stay with us. So he did. He stayed. I mean, he had total access to our house, come and go as he pleased. You know, 
eat out of the refrigerator, share our meals and whatever. We were just helping him kind of figure things out. Well, I should, I should also add this little tidbit of information. Joanne had gotten me a guitar for Christmas. I've always loved music, never had a guitar. She sacrificed all the little money that she was making from sewing clothes and bought me a guitar for Christmas. I was thrilled. It was a prized possession. And I was learning, I can remember still learning to play some of the old John Denver songs, Country Road, Take Me Home, you know, just the simple songs to play, a few chords, and I was learning to play the guitar. Well, I came home one day from teaching Western Kentucky University, and my bicycle and my guitar were gone. And we never saw that young man, Johnny, again. He was gone as well. Now with that, did we immediately vow we'd never have someone in our home again? We'd never help a stranger out like that. No, not a chance. There have been few times in our marriage where we've not had somebody staying with us. I mean, our home has always been open, continues to be, always will be. That's what I grew up with and with my dad being a pastor. But we certainly have that, that our home is open. We share food readily and a warm place to stay with anybody. So it didn't change that at all. I mean, I, I think the risk of hardening your heart because of situations like I described with this guy who claimed to be homeless and the lady who was out of gas. I think the risk of hardening your heart is greater than the risk of being taken advantage of. I mean, don't stop being compassionate. Don't stop caring. Don't stop being touched by the plight of those who are marginalized or have had fewer opportunities than we have. And this is an especially important time of year to be aware of that. Give generously. And the benefits, it's going to benefit you probably more than the recipients. But be used to giving, sharing generously. Well, let's jump into some questions here. My goodness, we could park on that for a long time. This comes from Mark, who says, I'm a business owner in outback rural Queensland, Australia. We own two businesses. One is a real estate and the other is selling rural property and livestock. I'm a Christian, have my family involved in business. We've been dream, we have dream boards and goals we want to achieve. It's hard out here at the moment due to an ongoing drought of seven years, which we're believing for will break soon. We know we should be here, but in the area of sales of houses, we've not sold one since purchasing the business. We're tithers and givers. I've been listening to podcasts of late. I think I need a mentor or coach. I know our business is maybe different from what is in the United States, but I was wondering if you could give some advice or someone to contact. Well, Mark, yeah, what a tough situation to be in. I mean, look around. Are other people selling houses? Are there things you could do creatively to get people interested? Or is the real estate market just absolutely dead because of what's going on there? Can you focus on selling livestock until the market gets better? Do you need to consider a different business? I mean, don't hold on to something that's not working. Now, this is a tough one. I mean, even if you feel like God opened the doors, God led you to this, God okayed it, approved it, even if that's the case, be careful about staying in something that's not working. I mean, sometimes winners quit and move on to the next opportunity. 
I know we hear a lot about persistence, you know, just stay in there, just hang in there. Well, no, there comes a time where you need to draw a line in the sand and say, this isn't working. I need to move on in a different direction. I don't know enough about your situation to know if that's the case. I mean, real estate seems to always move. And a lot of times people get out of real estate too soon. And when there is a downturn in real estate sales, we know that a whole bunch of real estate agents are going to get out of the business or let their licenses go into escrow where they're not active. That usually means that it's a heyday for those who stay in. So you have to make that decision. You know, is there a I don't, I don't know. Is there enough opportunity there to justify you staying in there, investing your time in that? But if you're investing your time and you're going week after week without closing a single sale, you have got to do something else that moves in a more positive direction. Lee says, how long do you think it should take to complete a book and curriculum? Does spring 2019 seem realistic? All right, this is, let's, let's break this down. This is the end of November. So we're really talking about, even if it's March, say spring, we've got four months. That's an extremely aggressive schedule for a book. Now, when we're, when we're talking about a book, I'm talking about a traditional trade book, something like 48 Days to the Work You Love, you know, 72,000 words, 240 pages. That would be really aggressive to pull that together in that period of time. Now I'm one for getting it out there, you know, just going with a minimally viable product, but with a book that's printed, that's a little different. I mean, if you're doing something that's all electronic, you can just get it out there, get feedback, modify it, change it next week. But in a printed book, that's, that's different. You do want it to be tested and proven before publishing. If you already have the content and you've been writing blogs and done other courses, et cetera, and so on. This is just a matter of pulling all that together into a real concise book and curriculum. Yeah, you can do it in that period of time. And if you're, you know, if you're going to do, let's say if you're going to do a 60 page book with five videos, creating a course that someone can go through in an hour, then yeah, you can do that by spring. But if you're writing again, the next 48 days to the work you love, it's going to take more time than that. I am not a fan at all of these programs that I see, you know, write a book, you know, in six hours or whatever ridiculous thing they're saying, you know, write a book in three days. I don't think that can be done well. Now, can it be done? Yeah. And then we see the quality of work that comes out and it's nothing to be proud about. Uh, it, it does take some time to write a book or develop a curriculum, develop a seminar, but it also depends how long you have been teaching, developing, nurturing that content. Here's an example. Two weeks ago, I did a, a workshop, a presentation at an author conference, and it was titled Income Beyond Royalties, Seven Ways to Generate Income from Your Book's Message That Don't Require Royalties from Your Publisher. Now, I, I am going to create a course on that, and I could do that in three days. No question about it, including the videos to explain each step. But I've been teaching that content for, my goodness, 10 years. I mean, I've written tons of posts about how to do that. I've been featured on lots and lots of podcasts about how to do that. I did a video with Michael Hyatt. That is his, he says, is his most watched video ever. 
It's how to generate $150,000 this year. I wrote a blog for his for his blog post, Michael Hyatt's titled, forget the royalties, just give my book away. So I've been developing that content. I mean, I have tons and tons of written content in that. So could I pull that together and do another book or a course or a seminar? Sure. So it depends where you are in terms of how much, but if you're coming to the, to the table cold, four months is a very short time to expect to write a book that has really any quality. All right, Joe says, how do I overcome the I read 48 days twice, but syndrome? My situation, I'm 60 years old, engineer. I do not want to quit. I'm a slow but methodical worker looking for redeployment for over a year now. Only paid employment since October 2017 has been short-lived test engineer assignment that was from August to September of 2018, less than two months. Wow. I was released because I was way too slow, but I was very methodical. Still raising family with high cash burn. Tough situation, Joe, that you describe. But what I recommend is that you do a job search. I mean, do a great job search. Tell you what, I'll shoot you a note. And if you do not have a copy of the latest version, the 10th anniversary edition of 48 Days, I'll, I'll get a copy to you immediately. And I want you to go right to the job search section and start that process. But with the employment situation as it is, companies are scrambling to find and keep employees. You can be slow, but if you're good, yeah, you're going to have opportunities that are out there. Don't be discouraged because this particular one didn't work out. Now, it is a concern that you've been looking for redeployment for over a year. That's a long time to be doing a job search. Something's not working well for you in that. And it's not because you're slow. It's something else. It's something that's not working well for you in the job search process. So is it your resume? Is it your interviewing skills? Is it your follow-up? Is it how you come across with low energy? I mean, if you're slow, does that mean that you're low in energy? I mean, just increasing your energy, just your enthusiasm, your boldness, confidence in the interview could be the magic ticket. It could have nothing to do with your work skills, but just how you present yourself in the interview. So there are things like that to look at. You ought to be able to go right to that, figure out what that is, what that is. And again, I'll make sure that you have a copy of 48 days to the work you love The the new version, this is what I'm running into. A lot of people say, yeah, I've got that. And then I realize that they have the three ring binder version that was available 20 years ago. Well, things have changed a little and I've done major updates. The new version is 60% changed from what the 2010 version was. So there, there are major updates in there about the changing workplace. And I want to make sure that you've got an updated copy. Well, hey, just a quick transition there to let you know these are real life questions. Love to hear your questions. Love to see those come in. Got a lot of them every week. Certainly, you know, unable to get through all of them, but I still love having a uh, wide variety of questions in there. We try to respond to everybody. So if you got a question, just shoot it to me. Ask Dan at 48days.com. Again, that's ask Dan at 48days.com. Well, Dan says at four, at 55 years old, the dominant landlord, th- th- this is really a cool setup. 
So you got to stick with me here because this goes way out just the normal guidelines of logic and sentence construction even. Dan says, at 55 years old, the dominant landlord of my personality traits and values, dreams, and passions want to evict the tenants of my skills and abilities. They are no longer paying rent or serving my life. Is this uncommon? Wow. I mean, that's a, what a great setup. The dominant landlord my personality traits, values, dreams, and passions. So they own the house. They want to evict the tenants of my skills and abilities because they're no longer paying rent or serving my life. Wow. What, what that, if that's really true, if that's an accurate rendition of where you are, then you need to bring in some new skills and talents and you can do that. And when we look at the changing landscape in the workplace, I mean, if you had the ability to be a great cotton picker, that's a great skill to have. Oh, until Eli Whitney comes along with a cotton gin and it puts you out of work. You need to develop some new skills and talents. If you were great on the assembly line in one of the auto manufacturing plants, wow, that's a great skill to have. Really well compensated for that. Good retirement plans. Oh, until robotics replaced you and took over your position. You need to develop some new skills. So that's true for lots of people, Dan. And if it is, so it is common. But if you understand who the landlord of you is, and you understand those personality traits, values, dreams, and passions, yeah, that's still the foundational building blocks. You can change skills and talents. You can learn new things that have value to organizations out there. That's a great, great setup. Yeah, absolutely. Pivot. Find out some new skills that have value. Become proficient and efficient in those, and you'll have value, again, either doing something on your own or being part of an organization. Now, this comes, I won't share a name here. I'm praying this makes its way to you, Dan. I'm one of the people who has tried to get a plug from you to be mentioned in your podcast not too long ago. I wanted to take time to say I'm very sorry that it sickens to me how desperate I've become trying to turn my life around. I'm watching my life fall to pieces around me. I know this is a temporary circumstance, which is an excuse, but being in this position has challenged my faith to say the least. I've been praying with my lips and with my feet, but my shovel is just not big enough yet. I've created a few products and in normal circumstances, I'd be proud of the progress. However, I've allowed my circumstances to marginalize my wins. I'm broken, have lost almost everything that I care about. Pray that God is tearing me down in order to build me back up better than ever before. All right. Well, you know, there's not much to add to that. I appreciate your humble spirit in that. Yes, I do get lots of emails from people who are pushing to be mentioned in the podcast or for me to promote their book or their program or whatever. And I do that a lot. I mean, I really want to do that. I want to see people thrive. We have a lot of people in the 40 Days Eagles community who are developing new things, and I'm thrilled to share their successes and see what's happening there. So I'm very open about doing that, um, but certainly not able to do that for everybody who comes down the pike. My email box, when I share that email box that is supposed to be reserved for podcast questions, ask Dan at 40days.com. Yeah, about 70% of what I get in there is promotion from other people who want to, people want to post blogs on my site. I mean, I get, I get lots and lots of notes 
people and companies who say, we'll pay to be allowed to have posts promoted on your website. I mean, people are just looking for new creative ways. And we know that yellow pages don't work. Billboards don't work. TV and radio ads are pretty weak. So people are looking, what's the new frontier? And it is in podcast. We know that. And I'm honored to be part of this landscape where podcasts are so popular. But I get lots and lots of notes from people wanting to get promotion in some way, even if they have to pay for it. And there are people who willingly pay to be a podcast guest. Well, you know that that's very rare on here. If I have a guest on here, it's because something has really touched me. I think it has high value for you, the listeners. And so we bring those on very judiciously and very rarely. And yet I get probably 30 requests a week from people who have ideas about somebody, you know, PR firms, publicists, publishers, authors who want to be on the podcast to promote what it is that they have. So, yeah, just uh, interesting times for all of us. We do need to be creative, but we need to do things that that make sense, not just things that push our way to fame and fortune. Hard to do. Um, Seth Godin has a brand new book out. This is marketing. Seth has always been kind of counterintuitive in this marketing space, saying that the kind of things that people do to push their product out, they develop a product and then they figure out, you know, who can we sucker into buying this? That's not a good marketing plan, Seth. And very accurately in line with my own views says that we ought to do something that is so spectacular that people want to be a part of it. And they share the word. I mean, we have no sales team at 48 days, except for the thousands and thousands of customers that we have who have been impacted in a positive way. They're our sales team. And that does take time. I recognize that. But you can do it fairly quickly in today's environment if you really have something that has value and you get those raving fans, they spread the word. That's the best way to do it. Well, this comes from Frank who says, Dan, I'm a loss prevention manager for a big box retailer, and I have a business idea I've been thinking about for a long time. I'd like to teach small business owners, managers, the principles of loss prevention. This would include security procedures, but would primarily be geared toward preventing shoplifting and theft by employees. What do you think about this idea? What steps should I take to get started? Thanks for everything you do. Well, Frank, I, golly, I think it's a great idea. I mean, that's a, that's a big issue loss prevention. I knew a guy who worked at Costco and it was always funny because I'd run into him there pretty much every time that we showed up at Costco. Well, he didn't have on the vest that Costco affiliates wear. He didn't have anything to identify him because he was totally undercover. And the stories he had about the creativity of what people would do to try to get things out, you know, buy a suitcase, but then happen to put a TV inside of it and try to get out the door with that, you know, pretty frightening stories of what people do to try to take advantage to steal. Seems seems unreal that in today's environment, people still stoop to that, but they do. It happens. And it's a problem for even small retailers, for sure. So I, I think you could offer to do a workshop. You could come to Franklin, Tennessee, where I live, and do a Saturday morning workshop for small shop owners where they pay a small fee, but you have 20 people in the room. You know, you could offer consulting services individually with them. You could put together an ebook of some sorts. You know, you could put together a little course that somebody could walk through perhaps in two hours to go through a course on how to 
decrease their losses in a store. Yeah, so there are a lot of things. Most of the things we talk about on here in terms of leveraging your intellectual capital are exactly things you could do in that area of expertise. And being real specific like that is a great way to stand out where there's not 50 other people doing the same thing. No, you're the go-to guy. You become the go-to guy in that arena. Come up with an interesting name, a really engaging name for your program, what it is you're going to do, and you're off and running. Love it. All right. This comes from Bob who says, Dan, thanks for all you do. I've been trying to figure out how to get into the golf industry. And I finally got my foot in the door. A few years ago, I used your job search techniques to try to get in with one of our local clubs as a membership director, but it was unsuccessful. This past summer, I retooled it, offered my services as a membership consultant. I submitted a four page proposal on what I could do for them, including a performance based commission schedule. They accepted it. I've been helping them revise their recruiting literature, brainstorm outreach ideas, work toward increasing their membership. As a bonus, they extended a junior membership to my son just for my efforts, which allows him to use a club, work in his game for his golf team. Thanks so much. Well, golly, thanks for sharing. That's awesome. That's a success story. I should have had that up in the success stories, but yeah, that's, that's a great story. I love that. Just instead of looking for a job, offer to be a consultant on a commission basis. Wow. That's way more attractive to a lot of organizations where there's not the risk and the unknown of, well, what if we pay you? And in 90 days, nothing changes where you're willing to step up to the plate and say, if nothing changes, I don't get paid. But if something changes, I get compensated very well. I mean, that could be a win-win. You can double the amount that you would have expected to be paid as a employee based on helping them do exactly what you say you can deliver. I love those kind of things. I mean, Jay Abraham, one of the old marketing gurus, made millions and millions of dollars by going to companies and simply saying, you don't have to pay me anything. But what we're going to do is we're going to benchmark what your revenue is right now. And then I want 10% of the increase over the next 36 months. Now, I just use those figures as an example, but that's essentially the model that he used. And he made millions and millions of dollars doing that because he really could help companies increase their revenue. And they had no, no hard cost for his services in that setup like that. Now, what he looked for was indeed the setup. It doesn't mean that he was willing to do that with every company that came along. He would look at who the people were, what they're already doing so that he was convinced there really was that growth opportunity there, but a great model and something, you know, a lot of you could good model. Um, this comes from Elaine who says I'm 63 years old, been at my current job for 15 years. It's been challenging and enjoyable, but the last year, my pervading thought has been, been there, done that. I could continue this course until retirement, but I really want to leave and find my passion again. Am I too old to begin the business of creating my own business, begin the process of creating my own business? I've always been very active and I'm in great health and would love to do this. But honestly, I'm a little scared to make the leap. What I would suggest, Elaine, is that you don't burn the bridges. You don't just walk away from your job, but that you start your own business on the side. Just use discretionary hours. Use 15 hours a week. I talk about that a lot. I've got a, a real clear formula for how to use four, or 15 hours a week so that you can grow a business dramatically in 90 days. Do that. Just Start your business that you would do on the side. And when you get to where you're creating 50% of your current income, then it's pretty reasonable to assume that if you devoted 
the 40 hours that you're now devoting to a job to your business, you'd be able to make up that margin and more very quickly. That's a process I've done over and over and over again with people. So it's not too late. I mean, when, when you look at it, cause you're 63 years old, what would you want your life to look like five years from now? That would make you 68. If you can get clear on what that is, and if it's radically different than what you have now, then by all means, start in this process. It's like, are you too old? No, it really doesn't matter. If you can create that life that you want, and let's say that you're able to do that in two years, which I think is probably reasonable in light of most of the businesses that people are thinking about starting today. So let's say that it took you two years to get there. Let's say that you didn't even increase your income any during that period of time over what you're currently doing now. Would you be willing to do that? Well, sure. And then if at that point, being 65, you would be, my goodness, if you're doing something that you really enjoy doing, you could do it for the next 20 years of your life. That's a very long period of time to do what you enjoy doing. So no, you're not too old. My goodness, get clear on what it is you want to do. Test the water, start generating some income by using those 15 hours and rock it out. All right, let me, let me go with, I'm going to grab one more here. This comes from Alan, who says, as I explore self-improvement and the pursuit of a better life and try to share this information with my family, I'm so disappointed in the responses I'm getting. My family feels that any self-improvement or spiritual growth is a scam or midlife crisis. And they just know, all caps, that the only way to earn a living is through a regular job. The notion of blogging, podcasting, writing, speaking, or coaching to help others, and in so doing, earning a living is laughable to them. Yes, I know I'm an adult and shouldn't let others' opinion hold me back, but it causes me to doubt myself. I heard you mention that your family is also very unsupportive in your pursuit of your dreams and aspirations. Do you have any advice on how to deal with negative family members? Yes. Boy, what a great question to be asking right here at Thanksgiving, where you're likely to get together with, with family members and be confronted with that. Well... The old quotation, I don't have enough time to unpack this totally, but the old quotation uh, adage, success is the greatest revenge, that really is true. One of the guys in my mastermind, Jeff Long, lives up in Ohio, and he decided he was going to buy an investment property, real estate property. Now, he's a video producer, that's his, but he wanted to do this on the side. Well, family members said, oh, that's nuts. You know, you'll lose your money. Nobody can do that, blah, blah, blah. Well, he and his wife carefully researched and bought a house. Well, the return on investment on that is just astronomical. They bought it under very reasonable terms, and the rent they're getting gives them a really high return on investment. Well, in sharing that now with family members, some family members have gotten together and said, hey, there's six of us that we've gone together. We've got a pool of money. We'd like for you to invest this for us in a house that's similar to what you have. I mean, what a turn of events when they were criticized him telling them how stupid he was, you know, a year ago. And now they're saying, hey, we want to do what you did. Can you help us? I mean, that's the best thing to do. Now, the other thing to do in the interim, right during the time is be careful about spending a whole lot of time with the people who are criticizing you. That's a tough thing to do. You may want to create some boundaries where you don't spend a whole lot of time because your success is going to be fueled by being around people who believe you can do it. People who are telling you, yes, it can be done. Not the naysayers, not the whiners and complainers. Now, this doesn't mean you love those people any less, but it may mean you spend very little time with them. And make sure that you're spending time, again, with people who are encouraging, who are cheering you on. 
that's the way to move forward. You can do that. I mean, we all have people in our family systems somewhere. If it's a mother-in-law or a, you know, a cousin, cousin Vinny, doesn't matter. We all have people who are not going to be our greatest cheerleaders. But there are people you can find who will be. And again, the greatest way to get those people in your family on board, even if it's a spouse, is to have some success. Your success will take away those criticisms quicker than anything I know. Well, Les Brown told us you're never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. Wow, we believe that's true. We know that's true for sure. So what dream are you going to bring to life in 2019? Hey, I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving week, spending it with family and friends. Maybe those people who are encouraging you on rather than family, but be that as it may, you can, uh, you can handle being around family even if they aren't enthusiastic about what you're doing. Just be gracious, hold your head high, don't drag them into conversations or try to convince them. Don't do that. Just get finished with the meal, go back home, continue living out your dream. Well, thanks for being part of this group where we know we can find or create work that is meaningful purposeful, and profitable. Make it a great week.